Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Praise the Lord. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Is God. He that buildeth all things is God. Boy, that's pretty plain, isn't it? Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Christ is his son over his own house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation or the rebellion. In the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my works for 40 years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Somebody say unbelief. Unbelief. In departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It is the deceitfulness of sin that hardens the heart to unbelief. Do you believe that? For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation For some, when they had heard, did provoke. They rebelled. How being not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? This last verse is key to what we're preaching tonight. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. We see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. I want to talk to you tonight about the cutting edge of unbelief. The cutting edge of unbelief. You may be seated in Jesus' name. The largest library in the entire world, (coughs) the Library of Congress, was founded in the year 1800. It was originally housed in the Capitol Building in Washington, but the building was burned to the ground during the War of 1812 by the British. The 3,000 volumes that were held and housed in the Library of Congress helped to kindle the fire that burned the Capitol that day. On January 30, 
1815, Congress set out to rebuild the nation's library by approving the purchase of the largest personal collection of books in the United States that belonged to our third president named Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was quoted as saying, I cannot live without books. But apparently, Thomas Jefferson was willing to part with his 6,487 volume library for a lump sum of $23,950. Could not live without books. But sold all of them for $23,950. Along with its current collection of 35 million plus books. The Library of Congress is the custodian of 13.6 million photographs. 6.5 million pieces of sheet music and 5.4 million maps. It has 838 miles of bookshelves. If placed end to end, those bookshelves would reach all the way from the District of Columbia to Granite City, Illinois. Every single day that the Library of Congress is open, every day on average, it adds 11,000 new items to its collection. Housed within its vault are one of only three perfect copies of Gutenberg's Bible that is left. The Basalm book, the first extant book printed in the United States in 1640. America's birth certificate will be found there. The 1507 world map is found there on which the name America appears for the first time. The world's largest number of historical phone books can be found there where if you would like to go take a look, you can find the five-digit phone number of your great-great-grandparents. You'll find it there in the Library of Congress. One of the lesser-known books in Jefferson's collection, but maybe the most significant book of all, was printed in Geneva, Switzerland in 1555. It drastically changes the way that we read the Bible. This book does. The French printer and scholar named Robert Estienne had a novel idea of adding numbers to create chapters and verses to the Holy Scripture. So the next time you cite Psalm 23 or you quote Romans 8.28, Ephesians 3.20, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Acts 2.38, whatever you decide to quote, you can thank Mr. Estienne's Biblia text for those chapters and verses. And just think. Without him, nobody could even hold up a John 3.16 sign at a ball game. Isn't that cool? I'm sure that's exactly what he was thinking of when he did that. I want someday for somebody to write John 3.16 on their cheekbone. It is thought perhaps, and I'm certain up for debate, but it is thought perhaps that the work of Mr. Estian, the uh, Biblia, the Bible that he took and divided into chapters, verses, and numbers, 
is perhaps the work that inspired Thomas Jefferson to invent, if you would, his own version of the Bible, the Jefferson Bible. Instead of adding numbers and chapters or adding anything to the scripture, Thomas Jefferson actually removed holy text. He created an abridged version of the Bible that simply goes through the scripture and removes the miracles. Thomas Jefferson had a profound appreciation for the teachings of Jesus Christ. But Jefferson was a child of enlightenment. When Jefferson was a 16 year old. At the college of William and Mary. Professor William Small introduced him to the writings. Of British empiricists. Like John Locke. Sir Francis Bacon. And these enlightened brethren. They were enthroned on the idea that reason was king and logic was lord. Thomas Jefferson bought into the idea. In February 1804, Jefferson went to work with a razor. He clipped his favorite passages out of the Bible and he pasted them. In dual columns on 46 octavo sheets. Somebody say the cutting edge. As he begins to take the razor blade. And slice through the pages of the holy scripture. And paste them to the double columned octavo sheets. Jefferson includes the teaching of Jesus. But he excludes the miracles of Jesus. Jefferson deleted the virgin birth. He deleted the resurrection and every supernatural event that occurred in between. In the words of historian Edwin Gustav, in February 1804, he said Jefferson went to work with a razor. He clipped his favorite passages out of the Bible and pasted them. In double columns. He said. But this man. If the moral lesson. Was embedded in a miracle. The lesson survived. The Jeffersonian scripture. But the miracle. Did not. Even when it took the careful cutting. Of a scissor edge. The story of a man. With a withered hand. In the Bible. Is a classic example. In Jefferson's Bible, Jesus still offers commentary on the Sabbath. But the man's hand is left withered. When Jefferson got to John's Gospel, Gustav notes he kept his blade busy. Jefferson's version of the Gospels end with the stone rolled in front of the tomb of Jesus. In Jefferson's Bible, Jesus died on the cross, but he never rose from the dead. There is a danger in the cutting edge of unbelief. Because when you subtract the miracles of Jesus like Thomas Jefferson did, you are left with a very wise, but a very weak 
Jesus. I want to tell you tonight, he is not only the wisest of gods, he is not only the sovereign, omniscient God, but he is a God that still works miracles. He is not just omniscient, he is omniscient. Omnipotent. He is all powerful. And I declare to you tonight that he is not a Christ that was left in an empty tomb. But that tomb is empty tonight because he got up. This world would love for us to leave our Christ hanging on the cross. But I want to tell you tonight when I pray to my Savior, I don't pray to the crucified Savior. I pray to the resurrected Savior. He is not a God that is dead, that he cannot hear, but he is very alive. And he is in this room tonight. He is passing by right now. Hallelujah. If you take the miracles out of the Bible, you're left with a wise Savior that understands how to teach law, but no power. Can I tell you right now that this is a picture of a modern day church? They have the word. But no signs confirming the word. I want to tell you that Jesus said no man could do these works. Lest God be with him. So I want to tell you that I've never healed the sick. I've never raised the dead. I've never healed the blind eyes. I've never opened the deaf ears. But I do know who can. The devil wants you to believe that the only thing there is to this life is just believing the word and just teaching the word. But I've come to tell you this evening that Jesus said these signs that I do, these works that I do, I'm talking about what Jefferson cut out. He said what I've been doing, you're going to do and greater work. So if the enemy can take away the miracles of Jesus, then he takes away the miracles of the church. We might be the only army in the world that talks about victory but never fights. Hallelujah, that was free. We may be The only movement in the whole world that talks about the healing and miracle power of Jesus. But just as soon as we have a bad day, we go to the prescription counter. I'm going to tell you tonight, you're looking at a man that believes in chemical imbalance. It happens. But not everything that's labeled a chemical imbalance is a chemical imbalance. I have walked into places where people are in straight jackets that there's nothing wrong with their mind. But they are oppressed by demonic and dark forces that have kept them locked up and locked down. I'm declaring to you tonight that I believe that some folks truly need help. 
But I'm also convinced tonight that if you'll give Jesus a chance, it may just surprise you how powerful he still is. I want to remind you tonight, he is not a crucified Savior. He is a resurrected Savior. You to hear me when I tell you tonight. You start cutting miracles out. You got thirsty people at the marriage supper at Cana. You got water that's still in water pots. And you don't have a woman saying, hey, whatever he says, do it. You know why some folks want to cut the miraculous out? Because everywhere miracles happen, obedience had to happen too. Ah, uh, that's all right. <laughs> if we could have miracles without obedience, it'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? But I want you to understand that the reason people are trying to cut the supernatural out of the body of Christ is because it cannot be manipulated. It cannot be controlled by men. You cannot press it down with your thumb. I'm telling you tonight, I don't want to be a part of a church that men sit up on a high throne of theocracy and say, well, we don't feel like there should be miracle signs and wonders. It's because they don't want to obey the Holy Scripture in order for the supernatural to be released let, let me break this down for you tonight you can't hang out in Egypt and watch the Red Sea part <laughs> Jairus don't stay home and his little girl get healed Some things only happen when you come where Jesus is working. That's why I want to tell you it's important to be in the house of the Lord every time the doors are open because this is a house where he's working. This is a place where his hand is working on display. I'm telling you tonight the cutting edge of unbelief says I don't feel like obeying that stuff so I'm just going to remove the miracle. But I'm telling you tonight what faith says to me is that there is a promised land I'm walking into and that promised land is that we are a church that in this age have been given power from on high we have been endued with authority from on high. I am not satisfied to clap my hands and patty cake with the devil and stomp my feet and dance and shout and go home while the cancer patient is still full of cancer and the blind still cannot see and the deaf still cannot hear. I'm declaring to you tonight, he is a God that is well able to heal. Y'all going to kill me tonight. If you look real close, you can see a freight train right behind me. Because I'm preaching to the cutting edge of unbelief. I'm pulling tonight. I figured when I got here this evening and began to work in the direction of this service that there was going to be a resistance. Because what I've come to tell you in this house tonight is something the devil doesn't want you to know. The devil doesn't want you to know that the Holy Ghost is for more than just feeling good. Right. 
The devil doesn't want you to know that the Holy Ghost is for more than just speaking in other tongues. The devil doesn't want you to know that when Jesus said you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost comes on you, that that word power is dunamis. And that's where we get the English word dynamite. What I'm saying to you is when you've got the Holy Ghost, you are dynamite and you are hell's worst nightmare. You are explosive to his plans for your children. You are explosive to his plans for your job. You are explosive. tell you about the cutting edge of unbelief sometimes it's easier to cut out the faith and the miracles because it doesn't cost as much if you just don't believe <laughs> I was reading a story this week I was reading a story about a man in France he was a doctor counselor he was dealing with this woman who had no short-term memory at all. But she could learn trends. He said that every time this woman would come to his office, he would extend his hand toward her. And they would greet each other with a handshake. Then he would walk to his desk and she would sit down and they would begin their session. Over time, he decided to do an experiment. He said every week that she would walk in. She would stick her hand out to shake his hand. So he would shake her hand. He would turn around and go to his seat. And she would sit down and they would begin their session. This one particular week. He took a pen, a tack. And he hid it in his hand. When she stuck her hand out to shake his hand. He reached out and he shook her hand with the tack. And she quickly withdrew her hand. Immediately after being stuck by the pen. She had forgotten that he had hurt her. She didn't even remember that he had stuck a pen in her hand. But what did happen from that week on, she associated the pen stick with the handshake. And so she stopped reaching out to greet him and shake his hand. Because although she didn't remember how it happened, when it happened, or where it happened, she knew that at some point in trying to love somebody, she had been hurt. And so she quit reaching out to the man that was trying to bring health to her. That was trying to bring healing to her. I feel like telling somebody in this house tonight that at some point in your life you stuck your hand out to greet faith. And you realized that faith was going to cost you a little bit. And at some point maybe somebody misused the gifts of the spirit. And maybe at some point you saw a charlatan on a TV broadcast that said God will heal you if you send a thousand dollars. So you sent your thousand dollars and you're still sick. So you have held the kingdom of God captive and responsible because somebody had a tack in their hand and now you're living on the cutting edge of unbelief because somebody has abused God's system but I'm telling you tonight that the value of a hundred dollar bill is still as powerful as it's ever been I don't care how many counterfeits they print it does not diminish
diminish the value of the real thing. I don't care how many charlatans get on TV and preach and lie to you and tell you if you'll give in the offering that God will move. You're looking at a man tonight that still believes if you'll call on Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He'll stop in his tracks. I prayed and God did not heal me. So what you're telling me is is that if we line your story up with Elijah's servant, when he comes back the first time, he's going to look at the prophet of the Lord and say, I don't care what kind of abundance you've been hearing. I just ran all the way from Carmel to go look out over the sea and I didn't see anything. But when he came back, the prophet looked at him. When he said, I looked and I saw nothing. The prophet of the Lord looked at him and said, son, go again seven times. I know the number seven. I realize the power of the number seven. Believe me, we've preached about it and talked about it. But I don't just believe that the prophet set his mind on the goal and said it's going to take seven times. I believe what the prophet was saying is go as many times as you have to go until you see the evidence that I've been hearing. I want to tell you what God is doing at FPC Anderson. He's getting some of you in alignment with what the prophet of the Lord has been hearing. And it's not going to be long if you'll keep going to that prayer closet. Every day that you're going to start seeing what we've been hearing in this church. I'm preaching to you tonight about the sound of an abundance of rain. I'm preaching to you tonight that the God of the harvest is still alive and well. I tried to live for God, Pastor, and my life fell apart. Yeah. I tried to live for God, and the devil started fighting me. What was your first clue? Right. Let me go ahead and throw this in here. I'm just going to surmise, okay? I'm just going to step out here on a limb. I'm going to skate on thin ice with hot skates. And I'm going to guess that when you quit doing the right thing, the fighting stopped. Well, I feel better now. The devil's not fighting me. Oh, God. I'm going to tell you what really needs to happen. You need to bow up. You need to square your shoulders. You need to look that spirit in the eye that's come against you. And declare you don't have anything big enough in your arsenal, son. That's going to make me back up. I'm declaring to somebody that gave in and sat down and backed up and let the devil get in and win. You let the devil discourage you. You let the devil get in your mind. You let the devil convince you it was over. So you went ahead and signed the account over to him and said, well, whatever he says is right. It's time for you to stand up and get that Holy Ghost pinned back out and begin to write X's to your name and declare, I refuse to accept the package today. I'm returning it back to hell. I will not receive that report.
There is a fine line between discernment and skepticism. Discernment is filtering what is false from what's true with the help of the Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Skepticism is the predisposition toward disbelief that is prejudiced by past experience. And your revelation of God is based on disappointment because of what He has not answered and what He has not done. And we believe that He's God enough to create heaven and earth in seven days. And he's God enough to robe himself in flesh and dwell among us and be crucified and placed in a tomb and get up on the third day. But he's not God enough to fix your job. Can I preach to you right here? When Jesus got to Mary and Martha, he said, where's your brother? They said, well, he's dead. He's in the tomb because you waited too long to get here. Jesus looked at them and said, take me where you laid him. Take me to the place that you put him in the ground, rolled the stone over him, and said it's finished. Take me to the place where you laid him. Well, Pastor, I'm just going to use discernment and I'm going to tell you that's not of God because I've tried that and it didn't happen. Better check the spirit tonight because I got a feeling what you're calling discernment could be a spirit of skepticism. That wants to look at the resurrection and say, man, if you'd have been here yesterday, you could have fixed this. It's a spirit of skepticism that says, you know what? I believe someday you'll be able to take care of it, but I'm so sad we missed you on this one. She said, I believe that one day there will be a resurrection. He said, What you're saying, I will be. See, some of y'all trying to preach with me right now. He said, what you're saying that I'm going to be is what I already am. Some of you are living with the hope of the great revival that is to come. With the great awakening that is to come. But I'm declaring to you tonight that what you're believing God can do, God will do right now. If you've got a razor blade in your hand, living on the cutting edge of unbelief, you can create your own narrative. And that's exactly, oh God, here we go. That's exactly why we have less power being displayed. I, don't say, I didn't say we have less power. I said we have less power on display than we've ever had before in some of our churches. It's because they're not willing to take the book as a whole. 
They want to take a razor blade to the part that's not necessary anymore because it's the 21st century and God don't expect anybody to live separated like that. God don't expect anybody to live like that. And when the book isn't enough and you've took enough razor blades to the book and you've ran out of options and now it's not in the book, you'll start writing yourself a creed and say the book wasn't powerful enough so I think I'll write myself a creed. But when you run out of options in that creed and you disagree with that creed, you'll write a creed of your own and blame it on the Apostles. Somebody asked me, and I don't want to make you snore in Greek and dream in Hebrew. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, what do you think about the Apostles' Creed? I said, well, one of the funniest things about the Apostles' Creed is it came out about 396, somewhere in there. I said, do a little bit of math. 396. I said, over 300 years after the last living apostle dies. And they're going to say, this is the Apostles' Creed. It's what they believed. I said, I'm going to tell you what I know about the Apostles' Creed. I've never read it, but I can tell you this. It's not what the Apostles believed. Creedal theology will begin to take a razor blade and slice out. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Somebody told me some time ago, they said, that's not what that means. That does not mean that Jesus is God. So let me tell you what it means to me. It means that his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. I, I, I can't hear you. What? The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And the Prince of Peace. John 14. Philip said, show us the Father, it sufficeth us. Philip, how long have I been with you? And you're going to say to me, show us the Father. Now, you, bet you got to put your razor blade up in here tonight, okay? How long have I been with you, yet you have not known me? That's still a problem. People say they know Jesus and they don't. He said, he that hath seen me. Have seen, God have mercy, have seen the Father. So Philip, put your razor blade away. John, the Baptist, he gets messed up in prison and he gets frustrated. He gets offended. He sends his disciples and he said, should we start looking for somebody else? And he reaches in his pocket and he grabs his razor blade. Because if you were really who you were, I wouldn't be going through what I'm going through. Wrong. What you don't realize, John, is that you are where you are because I am who I am.
Well, if God was in this, I, I, I wouldn't be hurting. No, 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 no. Put your razor blade away. That's the cutting edge of unbelief. It's the enemy that makes you feel like if you're walking with the Lord that you're not going to feel any pain and you're not going to go through any struggles. Can I tell you right now that the 12 men that walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years, they went through storms and he was on the boat. They had demons manifest and he was walking with them. They had family members die. Oh, you don't want to hear what I'm preaching to you right now. Jesus was teaching them, you don't need less trouble, you need more God. The things that were causing them fear, the things that were causing them fright, he looked at them and said, oh, you of little faith, put your razor blade away, you're living on the cutting edge of unbelief. And he looked at the wind and said, peace. He looked at the waves and said, be still. He is still a peace speaker. I'm doing everything I can to stay up here right now. God's trying to get in somebody's spirit tonight. He's not the God that was. He's the God that is. What I'm getting ready to preach to you is going to sound like rhetoric. So just stay with me. Okay? Now you're going to think this is just... Old rhetorical preaching, but somebody's going to have to get what I'm saying to you right now. Moses is on the backside of the desert. The Lord speaks to him, strange enough, in a dry place while exiled from where he was supposed to be. Doesn't that sound like the will of God? And he said, I want you to go back to Egypt. And I want you to tell Pharaoh, you let my people go. Moses asks what I feel like to be a pretty fair question. Upon whose authority am I going to say this? Because I'm on the run for something I probably shouldn't have done. So I'm just going to walk up in there and say, hey, Papaw, Papaw Pharaoh, I love you, Papaw, I know you adopted me, but we cool like that, don't be hating on me, Papaw, so I'm just supposed to walk up in there and say, Hey, big dog, let him go. Upon what authority? Whose name? Who do I walk into the presence of Pharaoh and say, let my people go? He did not say, walk in there and say, Yahweh said, let my people go. It wouldn't have mattered to Pharaoh. He didn't say, Hashem says, let him go. Nope. He said, when you walk into that man's room, to his presence, you tell him that the I am sent you. I am. 
I am. Why? Because I want Pharaoh to know that I am not the God of the Hebrew people before they came to Egypt. I am not just the God that they talk about that used to be. These are people that have lived for 400 years talking about how it used to be. But I want Pharaoh to know I'm not just the God that was. And I'm not just the God that will be. I am the God that is right now. (laughs) I am that I am. I am not the I will be. I am the I am. So put your razor blade away. Get off the cutting edge of unbelief. And just know that if God said it, God's going to do it. There has been such an aberration in the ways of Christianity. Because we have chosen and selected the pieces that we love about God. Left them in our narrative, in our idea. But in our fickle mindsets, we have just taken the part that we don't like and moved it out. But I'm saying to Moses that if you don't go to the backside of the desert, the children of Israel stay in Egypt. And if you don't go back into that wilderness, you know what? You know when Moses saw the burning bush? You know that we believe that was at the base of the Mount Sinai where the law of God was given during the 40-year wilderness journey. Moses is on the backside of the desert in the wilderness. And then the Lord causes Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the wilderness. You want to know why? Because if you want to lead in the kingdom of God, you will never be able to lead people somewhere that you haven't been. He said, Moses, if you want to tell people how to get through a wilderness, you're going to have to live through a wilderness. The help of God came in the form of a burning bush that was talking in the same place that the law of God came later. He said, I'm not only a God of miracles, I'm a God of order. So what we've moved into basically, if I could draw you an Old Testament picture in the New Testament church, is we want the mercy seat without blood on it. We want to take our little razor blade and get in a part of sacrifice and cut it out. Say, Lord, we'll take the glory. But we don't want the blood. But I am submitting to you tonight that in the New Testament, there cannot be a resurrection if there is not a crucifixion. And everybody wants to jump on the boat of power and authority. But Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. 
It's reverse. Because we feel like as sons of God, we are leading God where we want him to go. But he said that as many as were led. God, what are you doing? Just follow me. But God, I don't like the cleft of the rock. I can't see, but stay right there. Moses. Son, put your razor blade away. Because if I open my hand right now and I let you see into the process of what I'm doing, the process would destroy you. But if you'll just let me be God and you be faithful in the cleft of the rock, he said, you won't see my face. But when I'm done, you'll see my hinder parts. He said, really, what he was saying to Moses is, he said, if you'll just stay patient and sit right there and put your razor blade away and quit trying to cut this out of your life. He said, you may not see a thing I'm doing right now, but when I'm finished, you're going to know I've been there the whole time. I've come to tell somebody tonight, you may not be able to cut out with a razor blade of unbelief all the things that you've been through, but you can stand up tonight and say, by the grace of God, I came through it. Let, let, let me hurry. I'm finishing right here. You can stay standing. Don't leave me. Some of us are complaining about what we had to go through. But you can't even complain without testifying. I've had him look at me and say, Pastor, you ain't going to believe what I've been going through. Back up, dude. I'm not going to believe what, what? You're not going to believe what I went through. So are you testifying or what? Look, John, while on Patmos, by the way, because you can't just take a razor and cut out Patmos, looks up into the third heaven and sees New Jerusalem coming down. I wonder how that sets with all the anti-Semites. Heaven was called New Jerusalem. That's all right. That was free. He said, and all of a sudden, I saw a number of people. He was like, it's 10,000 upon 10,000. And he said, all of a sudden, I realized who they were. They had overcome the accuser of the brethren with two things. But if you've got a razor blade on the cutting edge of unbelief, you don't even have the blood because you cut that part out. And if you take out the mess you've been through, you don't have your testimony. So if you're living on the cutting edge of unbelief, you can't even be an overcomer. But John said, they overcame the accuser 
of the brethren by the blood of the lamb and by the word oh God y'all are killing me right now somebody shout it I'm talking about some of you right now are giving the devil glory for the things that you've been through. But you need to change your vernacular. You need to rethink your vocabulary. What you're saying is, I've been through it, but I came through it, and I'm still standing. Pastor, when I was a kid, I went through some things. Yes, you did, sweetheart, and I'm so sorry for that. I don't want to be insensitive to what you've been through, but I want to remind you, you're through it. I would imagine there was a little trepidation in the toes of the front line of the children of Israel as they stepped off into the Red Sea. But when they went through it, the Bible said on the other side of what they came through, they got out their tambourines and Miriam began to dance before the Lord because of what they came through. You'll never dance with Miriam if you don't go through the sea. You've got to go through it. Just, just yesterday... I was going through some archaeological studies, and this is going to sound boring, so let me give you the shortcut version. There was a man that I've been studying some of his findings and some of the things that he did. He's passed away now. But he snuck in to where I believe the children of Israel had crossed the Red Sea, whether it holds weight or not. In your opinion, that's kind of irrelevant to the point that I'm trying to make. They said there were spots right in that area. There was a, 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 an area that they could pass through if this was the actual place. They said just on the other side of either side of it, Bishop. They said that there were valleys of up to 1,100 meters deep. That means, in the shortcut version, without making you... Dig out your archaeological tools and start brushing bones off. That means that in the middle of their miracle, there were mountains and valleys. But they were still going through. It may not feel like a miracle because you're lower than you've ever been. telling you he is here right now God I don't understand all the ups and the downs I don't understand why I faced what I faced 
Because on the other side of this Red Sea, I'm going to begin to work through processes in your life that for 40 years you're probably not going to understand. But the first time that honey touches your tongue and the milk lays in your mouth and you start eating from vineyards that you did not plant. And you start moving furniture in houses that you didn't build. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Somebody got stuck, the Bible said carcasses, stuck in the wilderness. Because they would not go through. They lived on the cutting edge of unbelief. They said, I don't understand why God don't just move us in to the promised land. But if I could very quickly, I don't have time to preach this. But what they did not know is what the Lord had revealed at the beginning of this journey when they came out of Egypt. He said, I could have took them through the way of the Philistines because it was close. It was near. He said, but I could not take them through a shortcut. Lest peradventure, they would see war and go back to Egypt. Some of you have been begging God for a shortcut. But I feel like prophesying in this house tonight. You don't even know what God's kept off you. You may have to walk through a Red Sea. You may stand at bitter waters called Merah. You may go through some difficult seasons and wonder why you are where you are. But what you need to do is throw that tent flat back. Look up and see that pillar of cloud. And say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. And I don't know where you're taking me. But I'm putting away my razor blade of unbelief. I'm going to let you work. I'm going to let you do miracles in my life. Don't give up on God. Because he won't give up on you. Don't you give up on God. Cause he won't give up on you. Say it again. 